hacer. talkative mood today. That's good. I'm glad you're in a talkative mood. We ought to get out of here by two o'clock today. So. <laughs> well, it's great seeing everybody. Happy New Year. I appreciate uh, George uh, last week. I watched him as he had y'all's attention for an hour and 16 minutes. That's pretty good. <laughs> Okay, so tonight we have movie night. It's at 6 o'clock, and uh, we will have nachos and cheese, I believe. Where's, is Debbie in here? We are having nachos and cheese. And who? Popcorn. Yeah, we always have to have popcorn with movie. And we'll have uh, some Dr. Pepper and Pepsi products. And <laughs> For those of you that may not know that are visiting, I mean, have a Coca-Cola man right on the front row. So every once in a while, you know, we want to mention the other side. We love you, Brent. Um, so it starts at 6 o'clock, and the movie is entitled What If? And so I encourage you to come and be a part of uh, our time together. We're going to try to move some of the pink seats into the fellowship hall, which are quite a bit more comfortable than the uh, fellowship hall chairs. Those must just have a time limit to them because 
You can't sit in those things uh, very comfortably. Also, um, so that's 6 o'clock tonight. Also, small group uh, ministry begins a week from tonight, and I encourage you um, to consider the small group ministry. There are uh, brochures about it on the um, visitors' um, table out here in the, in the front, and uh, in the uh, foyer, you can, can pick up one of those and look at it, and if you're interested, um, please call the church office, and we can work it out for you to get in in one of the groups. Some of them are full, but we'd love to have you participate. It's one of the ways, especially if you're visiting with us at Grace, one of the ways that you get to know people beyond just a Sunday morning, a lot more informal and um, just a little bit more relational in terms of being able to spend time with folks. So I just really encourage you to, to consider that. Also, the 22nd of January, which is a Sunday, uh, there are five Sundays in January, in case you did not know that. But the 22nd of January, we will have a visitor's luncheon. So if you have been visiting with us uh, here at Grace and would like to know more, have more information about uh, who we are and, and what we're committed to, we'd love for you to come uh, to be a part of that. And that's on the 22nd of January, and that will be right after uh, the service and you can either call the church office office uh, to sign up for that, or there's a sign-up sheet in the foyer for that. We'd love you to, to do that. We'd like to get to know you, all right? Um, well, we are going back to 1 John. You remember that book? And, um, boy, I want to tell you what. We're about to get into some pretty high weeds, and um, you're going to... I'm not sure how you're going to respond to it, but I know this. It's God's Word. And because it's God's word, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we need to try to understand it better. One of the hardest things to do when you're studying the Bible is to bring in presuppositions to the text, especially if you've been studying the Bible for a long period of time. And it's hard not to be influenced by other pastors and teachers and such. And, and, and typically what happens, because I've been there and done that, well, so-and-so says this, so <laughs> he's right. And the reality is that um, all of us are fallen men saved by the grace of the Lord. And I know that there are a lot of men that labor to be accurate on a Sunday morning. I don't know any shepherd that wouldn't want to be accurate. So you want to uh, pay attention, not that you haven't been, but the next few weeks will be quite interesting, I'm sure, uh, for you as you sit there. I know it's been interesting for me. As I have sat in my office, as I have talked to myself in my truck, which I do quite a bit. I'm glad you're not present for that. I'm not sure how impressed you'd be with that. But I talk to the Lord a good bit about what I'm studying because I want to faithfully represent, you know, what he has said to us. So I don't know how many times you've studied First John, but I remember the first time I taught it, I was at Parkway Christian Academy. Uh, that was back in 1989. That's been a couple of minutes ago. And uh, I probably need to go back and apologize to all those students because there's absolutely no telling all the presuppositions I brought into that. But, you know, you learn as you get older in the Lord, don't you? And you come to understand that you thought you knew something and then you're like, hey, I've never really considered that and I might need to consider it. And So aren't we glad that it's the Holy Spirit of God that, uh, ties all these things together for us. So 
want you to take your Bibles. I want to read the section that we will attempt to cover this morning by the grace of the Lord. Um, actually, five verses, so I know what you're probably immediately thinking, that will not happen. But with the Lord's help, it will happen. And um, I think it's important for you to know that a new section, at least from what I can can gather, begins in chapter 2, verse 29. But I look at verse 28 personally as kind of a transitional verse. And so from 2.28 through 3.3 is what we want to try to handle today. We won't spend, obviously, as much time in 28 as we will uh, 29 through 3.3. But I hope that... um, the Holy Spirit of God will teach all of us uh, what he wants us to know and so that we can apply what his word uh, tells us. So, beginning in verse 28 of chapter 3. John says, Now little children abide in him. It's important to remember that um, a person's never said or told to abide in him to be saved. We're told to believe in him to be saved. And so I think that's important to kind of throw out there. You're going to have different viewpoints from different people who view that differently. But um, I will faithfully bring to you next week three viewpoints uh, on the next section that will help you to understand kind of where everybody's coming from with some of this. So he says, now little children abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God And we are. Now that phrase does not appear in a lot of manuscripts, that last phrase. So I'm not saying we shouldn't acknowledge it. I'm just letting you know that. For this reason, the world does not know us. So he identifies the world, the world being the unregenerate. Because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Which is really still a mystery for us. Because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope on him, fixed doesn't appear in the original. On him purifies himself just as he is pure. And I pray that the Lord will bless the reading of his word uh, today and stir our hearts as we uh, look at that particular text uh, today. So would you please um, stand and um, bow with me in a word of prayer. After I pray, you can sit back down for at least a few moments. I'm not sure how long. I just know there's a video And so you can sit. I don't think we've ever stood for a video. So you can uh, sit back down after we pray. Our Father, 
in this life that you've given us, we, um, we certainly should not take it for granted. Every single day, every single breath that you give to us is by your grace. We want to, I hope, as your children, Father, to represent you well. And I pray that you would put it on our hearts and our minds today to consider uh, what you've said to us through the Apostle John as I believe we see a little bit of this shepherd's heart today as he writes to those who he calls little children, born ones. I just pray that you would help us to consider what you say to us today, that the words that we um, look at, the, the message that we hear would would go beyond um, just uh, this morning, but that we would consider all of these things, recognizing that, uh, Lord, your word does not return void, and you want us to be um, laborers in your word so that we might understand better what your will is for our lives. So we pray that the Lord Jesus Christ today is honored in all that we say. And all that we do, thank you, Father, for everyone who has taken the time together here this morning, for those who may be watching us. We just pray that for those who are watching that can't get out, we, we want to thank you for them and just pray that you would meet uh, their needs today. We thank you for uh, this time. And as we worship you uh, in a few moments in song, I pray that our hearts are full and ready praise the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.
job forces me to travel sometimes more than I'd like, and I, when I'm gone, I miss you guys, and it's good to be back. I've been looking forward to worshiping with you guys this week. You know, one of the reasons and one of the goals that we have, I guess, um, the way we design our services uh, is so that when we come together uh, as a body of believers, we might have an encounter with God, right? Uh, that we might uh, be drawn close to him so he can use us for his glory. And the main way we do that uh, is through the proclaiming of truth. We hear truth. We say truth. Um, we hear it in the word when it's read. We hear it in our pastor's preaching. And we hear it when we sing it to each other. And so with that in mind, uh, as we sing this morning, I just ask you guys, all of us, from the stage to there and everywhere, to just really think about the words that we're singing. Um, and even ask the Lord maybe to help you to understand, open your eyes, up the eyes of your heart so that you can kind of grasp the depth and weight of the truth of what we're singing to each other so that uh, we can be used for his glory, right? Amen? All right, so let's all stand. Let's worship the Lord together in song. You guys sing out with us this morning.
with me how great is our God all the see how great how great is our God just our voices no instruments how great is our God sing with me how great is our God, and all will see how great, how great is our God. Amen.
Jesus Messiah, name above all names, blessed Redeemer, That's true for you this morning. Maybe just thank him for that. Just in the quietness of your own heart, just have a word with God. Thank him for the day you met Jesus.
can't keep dry eyes when I'm singing stuff like that. Uh, my mom's dad used to cry all the time when he talked about his salvation. And whew, Man, I guess I just inherited that. But uh, thank you, uh, praise team, for uh, being sensitive to the Lord and his leading and his guidance. Uh, for today. Let's pray uh, together. Father, I pray that your spirit would work in the hearts of your people today, your children. If there is even one in this room that cannot say that they are a child of God, I pray today that they could walk out of this place saying for the very first time, I am a child of God. So I pray your spirit would lead us and guide us in the name of Christ. Amen. I've been pouring over 1 John for weeks and weeks and it seems like almost 24-7 if I'm not opening a Christmas present or not holding one of my grandkids I'm not having a conversation with my wife I'm thinking about 1 John um, it's a very uh, compelling book it's very rich it's very deep 
you ever want to study a deep book, you've come to the right place. It's one that's going to um, challenge all of us. And if you think about it, we live in a time where there are more shepherds that are concerned with how to keep people in the seats from week to week than maybe there is the concern to just tell people the truth. This is what God says. And, you know, I'm not the first person that's thought of that. There is a person you're familiar with, I think C.H. Spurgeon, who lived in the mid 1800s to the late 1800s, very late 1800s. Look what he said. Time will come when instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. That's a sad indictment that that's the case. And yeah, I feel sorry for those people that are stuck in that pattern. But I truly believe that a shepherd is always tending his sheep. Shepherds don't have time off. They don't say, well, now today's my day, and Lord, it's my day, and you know it's my day, and I don't care what the sheep are doing, and I don't care how they're doing. And the reality is a shepherd is always tending his sheep. When we think about the apostle John, I think oftentimes we think about him as a disciple who hung out with the Lord, as an apostle who was eventually isolated um, to the island of Patmos uh, under Domitian, a ruthless Roman ruler, a man who wrote some of the New Testament, a man who was called the beloved disciple. And yet I think there's a little bit more to John than maybe we've thought of. And I view John as a shepherd. And as I think of John, I do think of him as an apostle, as the beloved apostle, but when I came to this section in the middle of 1 John, I, I couldn't help but entitle this message a shepherd's message. <laughs> I don't know, you may look at that and say, hey, that I think there's another title that you should have given it. Maybe you should have given it child of God. Well, maybe. But I like it because I think it reflects the heart of John. You know, we know there were deceivers then and there are deceivers now. And he was concerned about people who were deceivers speaking into the ears of those who belong to Christ. You know, and it's hard for us to put ourselves in, a, in the first century church and beyond. It's, it's hard to, for us to understand that the, the, the complete revelation was still being put together. And these people, can you imagine sitting on pins and needles waiting for the next revelation from God and to be encouraged in your faith is something that's very very important and I think that is exactly what John is doing in this section and there there are specific traits about a shepherd that come into play I think here in this particular section um we've read the text so we won't reread it but we want to begin where I believe John does as a shepherd, he alerts his sheep. That's what 
shepherds do. Well, what in the world does he alert his sheep to? You know, the word alert is a term that we're familiar with. Um, it's used in different contexts. You, as a teacher, want your students to be alert. Uh, but there are times when we are, when I think of the word alert, sometimes it's used maybe more as a, as a warning or a wake up. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about the siren that goes off once a month in Jefferson County. Do you know that? There's a siren that goes off once a month. It's at 10 o'clock, the first Wednesday. How many of you knew that? Oh, guys are brilliant. Because that noise is just something you can't, you know, it, it just, it, it comes and you expect it and, and it makes a loud noise and it's a test of the emergency system here in Jefferson County and and we're glad it works, right? We are glad it works, and it's a test, and it comes once a month, and it alerts us to the fact that when that siren may go off, not on a Wednesday at 10 o'clock, the first Wednesday, it truly would be an emergency, and we're thankful during that time. But when I look at this particular section of Scripture, I think John alerts his sheep to three things. All right, this is how I've broken it down. He First of all, he alerts his sheep to the appearance of the Lord. Do you know the Lord's coming back? I mean, weren't you ready after we got done singing that last night? You're like, come on, Lord. Um, John alerts his sheep to the coming of the Lord. He says in 28, Now little children abide in him so that when he appears. Notice the confidence with which John the apostle writes. Why wouldn't he have confidence? What did John the Apostle hear from his Savior in the upper room in John 14? I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, what? I'm coming back to do what? Receive you. And I love the language. Receive you to heaven. It's not what he says. Receive you to myself. It's just an exclamation point that heaven's about Christ. So he says that in verse 28 and then in uh, verse 2 of chapter 3, he says, we know that when he appears, again, John writing with confidence about the appearance of the Lord Jesus. Now, people ask, well, when is that going to be? And there's diversity of thought, as you know, as it relates to the next Time that um, Christians will see Christ and you have a good many people that do not differentiate between the rapture and the second coming of Jesus Christ or the second advent of Christ. We know when he came the first time, well, when will he appear the next time? That's the question that theologians, uh, people that are a whole lot smarter than me and you have wrestled with for literally centuries we believe and we teach here at Grace, and I personally believe in the rapture of the church. I believe the scriptures teach the rapture of the church, that the Lord Jesus will come for his church and we will meet him in the air. And the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that we will meet the Lord in the air. And notice the last part of that. And so we what? shall always be with the Lord. That's a mystery. We can't even imagine what that will be like or will be like, but it is 
going to happen. I like the way that J.I. Packer puts this. Um, Sometimes the fewer the words, the better. He says, we know very little about heaven. In fact, if you research the scriptures, we know more about hell than we do heaven. But we do know it to be an unknown region, he says, I love this phrase, with a well-known inhabitant, Jesus Christ. And there is no better way to think of our future. You know, I think a lot of people, when they think about heaven, they think about reward, and they think about the streets of gold and all the, that comes with that. And I probably did when I was younger, and there's nothing wrong with thinking about that. But as I've gotten older, when I think about heaven, I think about the Lord Jesus Christ, and I think about those saints who we know that are there with him even right now. Well, question that comes from that, are we ready to be with him? Are we ready? Because did you know that it can be at any moment. When, when John writes to these believers, just as Paul, he assumed that they would see the Lord in their lifetime. And sometimes you hear people criticize that. Well, they, why in the world would they have done that? And Man, aren't they kind of being arrogant as apostles writing with that kind of confidence that one day they would, would see him and, you know, that in terms of the rapture that, You know, they wouldn't die first. Well, how else do you want them to live? I mean, don't we want Christians to live with the hope of his appearance? That it could be at any moment, any day, any time? I think if we have that mind that literally Christ, our Savior, could appear at any moment, it might impact the way that we live, the way that we walk. The things that we value versus the things that maybe aren't as important. So, first of all, he alerts, John does, his sheep to the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't wait for that. I'm living with the anticipation of seeing him in all his glory. I hope you are. (laughs) I mean... I feel sorry for people who are living with the mind that, ah, he's coming, but, you know, that's way down the line. Yeah, I remember when I was young, I used to think, Lord, don't come till I get married. I'm just being honest with you. Hey, Lord, don't come till I have a kid. Right? Any of you want to admit you ever done anything crazy like that? Only, only me. Okay, well. But hey, he can appear at any time. We're waiting on nothing else to happen. By the way, just just a brief commercial here. We're not moving in this world to a state of utopia. So for people who have the mind that, oh, it's just going to get better and better here, you're not reading your Bible. I'm I'm just being honest. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. And can you imagine, I was telling someone this morning what it's going to be like without this influence of the Holy Spirit. So where does that come from? Believers. So he alerts them to the appearance of the Lord. Secondly, 
he alerts them to the separation from the world. What in the world are you talking about? Well, let's read it together. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And we are. Notice John lumps himself into that equation. He says, for this reason, for what reason? For the reason that we're called children of God. Okay? For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Now, that word know, I've told you before, there's a couple of different renderings of that word um, for us. And one is the idea of coming to an understanding. The other, I, the other definition is um, to know by experience. John uses that second term, gnosko, in chapter 3, verse 1. So for this reason, the world does not know us by experience because it does not know him by experience. Or you could read it this way. For this reason, the world does not know us, recognize us. Should the world recognize us? How should the world recognize us? Notice he says, for this reason, the world does not know us or recognize us because it did not know or recognize him. Well, why doesn't the world know us? I got to thinking about that. Why doesn't the world know us? Well, the world doesn't know him, but does the world know us? Well, according to John, he says, the world does not know us. In other words, they don't know us as being born again, having a new nature in the context of what he's written since verse 29. But notice, I put some things together here for us to think about. What does it mean that the world does not know us? Now, what happened to you after your new birth? Well, uh, you were a new creation in Jesus Christ. You had a new nature. Now, you still have, as we're going to look at next week and probably the next week and maybe even the next week, we still have that old man. Now, there's a lot of, uh, what we say, discussion around that. And that's when the high weeds are going to get us, all right? But when we think about uh, the reason that the world does not know us because we're children of God, here are some things that kind of, to me, and these are this is just a start for us. The world does not recognize us because we have the mind of Christ. You say, well, what's the big deal about having the mind of Christ? It's a huge deal. But Because before the mind of Christ... Everything that you decided or chose was based on what? The world and what you wanted, self, the whole nine yards. But we have the mind of Christ, so we understand that there's a lot more to consider because I am, as he says in context, a child of God. So the world doesn't recognize us because we have the mind of Christ. We don't just make a decision because it feels right. Do we? We make a decision or we make a choice because we understand, hey, this is what God has already said about this. So that when you take an issue like abortion, the world doesn't understand us, do they? No. Their mindset is, well, that's a person's choice and 
You know, I mean, really, who, who needs to consider this unborn substance, as they would say? Well, because we have the mind of Christ, then we, we have an understanding of life and the value of life. And the world looks at us and says, man, these people are strange. We don't understand them. And you know what I say to that? Good. That's good. It's good that the world doesn't um, understand us and that they, and really, and let's just be honest, they hate, they're growing to hate Christians. That's the world that we're living in. So the world does not recognize us, I would suggest, because we have the mind of Christ, because we value the eternal over the temporary. Have you ever asked an unbeliever what comes next? And we can already see, no matter how much you exercise or how many facelifts you have or whatever the case may be, we all have a problem. When Adam sinned, what came into the world? Death. So we're moving toward death. I think Paul understood that. I think John the Apostle understood that. But you know why? That's why I think they lived with hope. They understood, hey, this death thing, it's a mystery. So I hope next on the radar is I see Christ because he's coming for me. But the reality is that we live for the eternal. We value the eternal. Before Christ, did we even think about the eternal? Hey, how many of you, that helps you get through the day? To think about the eternal. When your brother or your sister or your spouse goes to be with the Lord, aren't you glad for the eternal? Aren't you glad for the hope that we have? Which leads to the third point that I make here. The world doesn't recognize us because we have true hope. And I put in parenthesis confidence. We're confident. Confident in ourselves, no confident in Christ. Where does that come from? The Word of God. The Word of God. We stand on the Word of God. Why do we do that? Because we stand on solid ground, not sinking sand. And the world is standing on sinking sand. It's all about themselves. It's all about their thoughts, um, their life, their this, their that. Did you know that as a Christian, we stand on solid ground? Have you ever thought about that? Well, somebody did. Because they wrote a hymn. And I like the hymn. The hymn is, my hope is built on nothing less. Might I encourage you young people that music is an interesting subject that as a 58-year-old man, which might be old to you young people, as a 58-year-old man, I love some of the hymns. And I love some of the praise music. But I don't like all, love all the hymns and I don't love all the praise music. But I love the words of a lot of them. And that's where I kind of land the plane. Let's look at the content. Well, listen to this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. 
I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. What does the world do? Trust their frame. What do we do? Because we have the mind of Christ, we lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Boy, how many times have we needed to sing that in our lives? When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. And here it is. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is what? It's sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. The world doesn't recognize us because we're standing on solid ground and they're standing on sinking sand. Well, he alerts them to the separation that believers have from the world. And then he moves to alerting them to the change that is coming. When my boys were growing up, I should say our boys, my wife and I have three boys, they are men now. My youngest, it's hard to believe, is 25 years old. That makes Teresa old. <laughs> I hope there's lunch today. But one of the things that I used to tell my boys, pretty regular is that one of the hardest things they would deal with in life is change. You know what? I think they've actually come to the point that, hey, Dad wasn't crazy. Because there's change in life. And one of the things that we experience as we get older is we look forward to the change that John's talking about that's coming. Don't we? That's why young people... If you hear older people talking about, boy, I just can't wait to get this new body, they mean it, okay? They're not, they're not kidding. It's a mystery what that will be in many ways. But notice what John says. He says, it has not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when he appears, and we know that, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. I want you to notice the link between seeing him and change. Look what he says. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Wow, what a day that's going to be. I mean, you just wonder how sometimes these apostles who had the privilege of writing just Stayed in their sandals. I mean, they're just writing this unbelievable truth. And they believed it. You know how I know they believed it? Because they gave their lives for Christ. 
You know, all of the apostles were martyred except John. And you look at what took place with him as he was exiled to Patmos, put in a hot uh, cauldron of, of oil. That doesn't sound pleasant, does it? These guys, why in the world would they do all that? That's why. They believed that he was not only coming, but that they would be changed. Paul writes it like this. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, meaning die. That's the word. But we will be cha- all be changed. It doesn't say some or, or, hey, you have had to do this. You know, if you didn't do this many works for the Lord, well, you're not going to be changed. No, 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 no. Every believer will be what? Changed. No more headaches. No more backaches. I mean, there's more replacement surgeries these days than there are hamburgers in the world. I mean, you, you think about, I mean, there's knee replacement, shoulder replacement. I mean, there's all kinds of replacement. And these young people are like, why are these people, old people having surgery all the time? Because our knees hurt, right? Our ankles hurt. I remember 10 years ago, I was kind of introduced to that, that my right knee didn't want to get out of bed. But everything else was all right. But as you get older, it just, it hurts. So these older people that reside here on Sundays, they're looking forward to heaven because their body hurts. But you know that change that's coming, we're going to have a glorified body. No more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more sin. Paul says we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Take it to the bank. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. Wow. You say, well, that, what's that going to be like? Just listen to these words, okay? I don't want you to turn there because we're not going to spend a, a good amount of time there. I just want to read this to you because Paul writes about this kind of change in this mystery. Listen to these words. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. Is raised in glory. Now you could say first Adam, second Adam, as you're reading through this and you're thinking about it, right? With the first Adam came the fall, right? With the second Adam came what? Salvation and hope. Listen to this. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness. <laughs> you just think you're strong, young people. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, and there is, he's not saying if there is and there isn't, if there is and there is, there is also a spiritual body. And then he says, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. And we like that. And his name is Jesus Christ. 
as is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also those who are heavenly. Just as we have uh, borne the image of the earthy, and we have. This is unbelievable to think about. We will also bear the image of the heavenly. We will all be changed that know Christ. And by the way, just as a side note, kind of a commercial, those who do not know Christ, they will be raised too, and they will have a body that will um, be given to them that will for an eternity go through torment. There's not annihilation, there's torment. So he alerts his audience to the change that is coming. Well, then we move into the text, into the next section, and he encourages, John does, encourages his sheep, and he encourages them with some doctrinal truth. You know, doctrine is encouraging. I don't know that you maybe have that viewpoint, but it is. The first thing he says to his audience is, we know he is just. Now, I want you to look with me in verse 29 of 1 John chapter 2. Notice he says, if you know that he is righteous, well, who does that refer to? Um, theologians are kind of mixed on that. I personally believe he is changing in, in this very sentence. He, his pronoun usage refers to different persons of the Godhead. I believe the first one refers to the Son and the second one to the Father because when it comes to being born of him, that's what the New Testament teaches us, that we're born of the Father. But nonetheless, there, you, know, you can look it up this afternoon in your spare time. There's a lot of discussion around that. He says, if you know that he is righteous. Now, the way that John writes that and the way you read that, you might go, oh, well, they might not have known he is righteous. That's not what it means. He's not saying to them, if you know and you might not know, but he's saying, if you know and you do know. You know that he is just. Now, how many times do you hear sermons on the justice of God? Have you ever heard anybody say, we're going to do a series on the justice of God? And crowds are just packed in attendance, right, to hear that subject. But we know that he is righteous, he is just. That's the definition of the word. And it's interesting in the context of the passage, immediately following his statement so that when he appears, right? Because there's coming a day when he will appear and we will see him face to face. The next verse, he points to the justice of God. That's not an accident, okay? He's saying, if you know that he is just, and he is just. We know that he judges. In fact, we don't have time this morning, but if you went to the Old Testament, how many examples could you cite of the justice of God? Just in the life of Israel, Many times you see the justice of God as it relates to the nation of Israel. He judges. Judgment is coming. In fact, I think it's one of his overall themes in this section of 1 John. Because as he comes to chapter 4, he alludes to it again. So I would say judgment has happened. Judgment does happen. It happens today. You think about that? Does judgment happen today? 
on the part of God in relationship to his church? Answer, yes. Did it happen in the early church? Ananias and Sapphira, pretty good example, right? Wow, what a scene that would have been. And then you go to fast forward the pages to the Corinthians and, and they were celebrating the agape feast but weren't doing so in a worthy manner and the Lord judged them for their actions. And the Bible says some were weak, some were sick, some were dead. Okay? This Christian life thing is a serious thing. Can we agree on that? It's serious and God takes it serious. And so what he says here in verse 29 in the first part, he says, we know that he is just. Peter knew that. Boy, did he know that. He knew it by experience in his own life. But remarkably, as the Spirit of God came into the apostles, and you look at, obviously, post-resurrection and ascension of Christ, you have Peter in his second sermon preaching, and he says this, but you disowned the holy and righteous one. Who in the world is he talking about? Jesus Christ. And ask for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. So he refers to the Lord Jesus as the righteous one. And the righteous one has a right to do what? He has a right to judge. And he does judge. He has judged. And listen to me. He will judge. This is probably not a popular subject either. He will judge the unbeliever, right, to the lake of fire for eternity. Scripture's clear about that. But every single person that is a child of God will be judged. Myself, and if you say that you belong to Christ, you will be judged. Now, as we know from the book of Romans, we're not judged to condemnation, but we're judged. You know where people park that doctrine? You know where people park that doctrine? Like if you're using the parking lot as an example. It's all the way in the back. I don't like that subject, Dad. Can't we talk about something else? Sure. Let's talk about the justice of God. Let's just say God is just, and as a just God, he has judged, he does judge, and he what? He will judge. And so we will be judged. So as you're looking at this, you're like, wow, you know, he is a just God. He is a righteous God. He will judge, and that judgment is known as the Bema Seat judgment, mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 3 and other passages in Romans and others. Maybe one day we'll just look at a series on the justice of God. It's interesting that Peter not only alludes to it there, but as he writes his letter of 1 Peter, for Christ also died uh, for sins. What does that next phrase say? Say it louder. How many of you believe that? John did. Because he said that he became the propitiation for what? Not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. But you know you have theologians that argue all day long on that. It's the truth. I was telling somebody this morning that 
1 John has been such an arduous study and it has, um, it, it's been painful. Can I, I'm just being honest with you, right? This is like a commercial break. It's, it, it's been painful because of the disagreements in Christianity that have occurred over this letter. And it leads to things that some are secondary in nature. You know, and the church spends a lot of time sometimes arguing about secondary things. Might I encourage us not to do that? Might I encourage us to focus on the primary things and agree to disagree on some of the secondary things? Do you know there, as I told you from the very beginning of 1 John, there are some that view this book as a test of relationship. Well, if you do this, you belong to Christ. If you don't do that, you don't belong to Christ. And some view it as a test of fellowship view. I mean, if you're not doing this, you're not in fellowship with the Lord. Well, there are really good theologians on both sides of the aisle. There really are. So it's hard. It's been arduous. It's been very, very difficult. But we can say with confidence that the Lord is just. And every theologian would agree with that. He is just. And notice what Peter writes as an apostle. He says, for Christ also died for sins once for all the just being who? Christ, for the unjust, being all of us, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Listen to what R.C. Sproul wrote. I didn't put it on PowerPoint, because if I give you every single one, then I'd spoil you. Listen to this. R.C. Sproul, in writing about the Lord, and specifically as it relates to his righteousness or his justice, he wrote these words, A God who is all love, all grace, all mercy, no sovereignty, no justice, no holiness, and no wrath is an idol. R.C. Sproul's with the Lord. Confident in that. That's quite a quote, is it not? Because... Let's be honest, in most churches, I say most, I should, let me erase that. In some churches, there is so much emphasis on the love of God and no discussion at all about the justice of God. Now listen, I love the love of God and I'm all about the love of God, but not minus the justice of God. And that's the way it's kind of treated. I don't know how you see that, but I think R.C. Sproul is right. He goes on to write this. It is his very character and nature that is the standard by which he judges. We judge this way, you know? Um, So, so much different from the Lord. Well, all right. Secondly, he talks to them about the love of the Father. He says we are loved by the Father. One of the ways that we know that whenever we look into the scriptures is from Romans. Romans tells us, Paul writes, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet, what? Sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet, what? Sinners, Christ died for us. Well, in this text in 1 John 3, he says we are loved by the Father. Notice what John writes. He says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. And in this context, the love of God speaks of the manner of his love, 
how he has loved us. And in the context, we're told he's given us something. What's interesting is that John says the giving is one-sided. He said, what in the world do you mean by that? I mean this, it is not a gift that was bought or earned. Are you listening to me? wasn't bought or wasn't earned. We're used to gifts bought, earned, bought, earned. Well, this is not something that we bought and it's certainly not something that we earned. This gift points directly to the love of God for those that are his. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, it leads us right to the second point because it shows us the extent of the love of the Father. We're his children. Whoa, you said that's the gift? Well, I was looking at something for more than that. <laughs> really? Dr. Talley, who is with the Lord, he used to always pound the pulpit. He was a pounder. He would pound the pulpit. Child of God. Child of God. If he said child of God once, he said it, oh, 10,000 times when I was a student at Southeastern. Child of God. And you're like, you know, trembling. Well, let's say it one more time. I don't think I understood the ramifications of that statement when I was in school. I tried. And I'm not sure I fully understand it now. I don't think I do. But I do know this, that that's my identity as a believer. I am a child of God. The word there is techna, which is child. It's not weos, which is son, different. I'm a child of God. That's what he says. See how great love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called, notice John puts himself in the equation, children of God. Then he says in verse 2, Beloved, now we are what? We are children of God. That's our identity. Let me tell you a couple of things. That this new nature, being a child of God, is something that happened to us when we were born again. We became a child of God. Now, you don't need to think about it as um, we still don't have, from my viewpoint, that we still don't have the old nature. We're going to talk about that more. But part of my identity is I am a child of God. Now, there's two things about that that you need to know, and I did not put this on the PowerPoint. Again, I don't want to spoon-feed you the whole thing. Number one is our identity won't change. It won't change. Might I say it can't change. When you became a child of God, when you were born again, when you trusted Christ, you became a child of God. You were made alive. That had never been the case spiritually. You were alive physically. And you bear the image of the earthy. But now you bear the image of the heavenly. You're born again. Our identity won't change. And no one can remove our identity. Are you listening to me? You have people that really fear that whole issue. Well, if I do this, then I might not be a child of God anymore. 
well, you know what? John wrote this, part of the reason John wrote this letter. We come to in chapter five, and I'm just, you'll forget by the time we get to chapter five. Who knows what month that'll be? But when we get to chapter five, listen to what he says about this whole issue of, of certainty of who you belong to. Verse 11, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things, verse 13, here it is. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So that you may what? Know that you have eternal life. You know, I hope you're not one of those that struggles with the security of the believer. And if you are, I'd love to sit and talk with you and show you more of scriptures that talk about the fact that when you were born again, you were sealed by the Spirit of God. And you know what? In that verse, he says, and twice in Ephesians, sealed by the Spirit of God until the day of what? Redemption. Woo! Did you know that the Holy Spirit of God testifies with our spirit that we are children of God? You say he does? The Spirit himself, Paul wrote, testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Um, one theologian in writing about being a child of God said this. Children of God is the scriptural concept that God has given us his nature, has given his nature, excuse me, uh, to us by a new birth. We're born again. We have a new nature. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus in John 3? You must be what? Born again. You must be made new. You say, oh, well, we make ourselves new? No, 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 no. He makes us new. Okay. I like uh, what is said here that the believer can sing because he's a child of God. He can sing, I'm a child of the king. You know the song? A child of the king with Jesus, my savior. I'm a child of the king. Are you a child of the king this morning? Do you know that? Is that your identity? Is that what your passport says? <laughs> is that your stamp? I, I like, the only thing I like about going to another country, because I hate flying, but the only thing I really love when they stamp that passport, that's the coolest thing. It's like, whoa, man. I, you, you, I went to Belize in 92, my first time out of the country, and they stamped that passport. You're in Belize. I'm, I'm in Belize, you know? I felt like I'm a citizen of Belize. Hey, listen to me. Whenever you trusted in Christ, you were born again, you were stamped. You belong to the king. Isn't that good stuff? All right, we're almost done. You're like, Thad, you're not almost done. We are. Two things said about this that I really liked in reading. Timothy Keller says, if you're a child of God, you don't lose your status if you have a bad week. I thought that's a really practically good way to say, hey, look, once you're saved... You're saved. Once you're justified, you're justified. The rest of your life is spent on earth in this process of sanctification. Charles Spurgeon, who we alluded to earlier, a child of God should be a visible beatitude for joy and happiness. You know what? The world shouldn't recognize us. The world say, what's wrong with those clowns over there, right? And he says, in a living doxology for gratitude and adoration. Well, Here's the application. 
he reminds his sheep. What does he remind them of? First of all, he reminds them in this section to abide in him. If you want to do righteousness, you have to abide in him, right? The word means to remain in him, to live in him. It speaks of proximity to Christ, okay? Paul would write it like this. We need to walk by the Spirit so we don't what? Carry out the lust of the flesh. Oh, we can carry out the lust of the flesh? Yeah, that's coming. We're going to talk about that whole sin thing coming up soon. So he says to these children, these little children in verse 28, born ones, remain in him, abide in him. Now in context, he's telling them to do that because they were going to sing. It's the motivation to live the Christian life in a manner that's wholly separated unto God. Um, did you know that before verse 28, because verse 28 is kind of a culmination when it comes to that word abide, seven times in chapter 2, he refers to remaining in the Lord or abiding in the Lord or living in the Lord with verse 28 kind of being the culmination of all that. There's a real simple statement. Don't know who made it, but I like it about this remaining. Remain in him because you will see him. That's kind of what John says, isn't it? Remain in him, live in him because you will see him. And we don't know. Listen, we don't have the calendar. We don't know exactly the day or the moment that the Lord Jesus is coming for his church. So John encourages, we discussed already, this issue of abiding in Christ. What happens when the believer abides in Christ? Here it is. Abiding Christians do righteousness. That's what happens. You say, they do it in their own effort? No, the Lord does it through them as they're abiding in him. So the key there to doing righteousness is what? Abiding in him. And John says, if you know that he is righteous, and you do, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Let me make a couple of comments because this is kind of an introduction to the weeds that are coming for us the next couple of weeks. What does the word practice mean? It means to do it. That's what it means. If you look in the original, it means... You could read it this way. You know that everyone who does righteousness, everyone who carries out righteousness. Now, this is what some have done with that verse. Well, if they don't practice righteousness, they're not of God. Is that potentially a problem? That's potentially a problem. Because if you look at it practically, do you and I always practice righteousness? Well, I don't. So there's going to be a lot of discussion about this next couple of weeks. It's going to be so much fun. You're going to love it. So John says here, you know that everyone who does righteousness is born of him. You say, well, what does it mean that they're doing righteousness? In context of 1 John, I think there's two primary thoughts. Obeying God's commands and loving our brothers. Now, there's more than that, okay? But those are two primary thoughts. What does it mean to practice righteousness or do righteousness or carry out righteousness? It means to obey God's commands. Well, when am I obeying God's commands? When I'm abiding in him. When am I loving my brothers like I need to? When I'm abiding in him. Because there's times I'm not loving my brothers. Is that what's going on with you? You're not loving that brother. I'm not abiding in him. 
I think we give ourselves maybe too much credit at times to think that we won't be in, I would say, even a pattern of sin in our life. We'll talk about that next time. Because you have to do something. You have to answer the question, what happens to people who do righteousness and you've seen that in their life, but then there's this period of time where they're not doing righteousness? Oh, well, they must not be saved. That's the simple answer. It really is. I think theologians, have said, oh, the simple answer is they don't know Christ. Actually, I think that's the hard answer. I think the easy answer is to look at what John says and Paul says about the flesh and about the spirit and about the fact that believers sin. The whole question is, and we'll look at it together, and I want to get ahead of myself, is can believers practice sin? That's where a lot of the argumentation is. Getting back to this righteousness, F.B. Meyer says those that are born of God do righteousness. Well, I agree with that. They do. But they do that when they are abiding in the Lord. Okay? Let me give you a couple of thoughts on this. There's two kinds of righteousness in Scripture. Okay? This is a good place to put it. I couldn't think of another time when this would be appropriate. So, here it is. The first aspect of righteousness is positional righteousness. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made, what? The righteousness of God in him. Okay? It's not that we are righteous. It's that Christ is righteous. And that he's covered us with his righteousness. Do we understand that? So that when God sees Thad Blunt, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And the right standing I have is because of Christ. The second aspect of righteousness is experiential righteousness, which is exactly what John, I believe John is talking about in this context. And Charles Rory put this together. He said the second aspect of righteousness is experiential righteousness, which John, I believe, as I said, is referring to, and which Paul is referring to in chapter 1 of Philippians. When he says, This I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and all discernment that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ, being filled with the what? Fruits, plural, of righteousness, which are these fruits of righteousness, which are what? They're by Jesus Christ. And when do fruits of righteousness happen in my life, in your life as Christians? When we are abiding in him. Because when, hey, listen to me, we're not abiding in him, it gets ugly. It gets ugly. All right, well, last of all, and we'll wrap it up. The third, I think, practical application in the text is that um, because we have this hope, we should purify ourselves. Notice what he says in 3 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. He says, And everyone who has this hope, what hope? What hope? Class, the hope of verse 2. When he what? Appears. When he appears. This hope, this hope of him appearing and us being changed. Everyone who has this hope on him purifies himself just as he is pure. That word purify there means to cleanse from defilements. We must purify ourselves. Say, well, how in the world is that done? It's done as we live in him and abide in him, but there are some real things that 
real life things that I believe we need to cleanse ourselves from in terms of defilement. Because sin is ever knocking and ever present at the door. So how do we, what, what is important that we would cleanse? Might I just give you a few, read you a parting uh, hymn and then we'll pray. Listen to this. I say we need to cleanse ourselves or set, set ourselves apart in our mind. We need to cleanse our minds. At times, we need to cleanse our ears. Agree? Cleanse our eyes, our hands, our feet, our tongue. What does James say about our tongue? It's defiled with it, we what? Bless and curse. So how in the world do you walk out of here and what do you do with this? Well, you might go, this is a weird place to end, but that'll be all right. I'm not bothered by that. This is the way I look at it. I look at all that information that John gives as a shepherd to these born ones. And I can't help but think of the family of God because that's who he's writing to. When I was a boy growing up, we used to sing a song. You know what that song was? Family of God. I'm so glad I'm a part of what? The family of God. Do you know we're a family? Listen to this. I won't read the whole hymn, but I'm going to read the The chorus, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Listen to this. Join heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod, for I'm part of the family, the family of God. You know what we do with what we've heard today? If we're in Christ today, we walk out rejoicing that we're part of the family of God. That's what we do. Let's pray. Is there a closing song? Okay, they're shaking their head. All right, let's pray. Father, I think we're going to find there's a whole lot to swallow in this book, but it sure is fun. It has been for me to kind of take it in and absorb it, think about it. I thank you that your spirit is the teacher and that your spirit leads us into all the truth. And when we look at this and we think about the shepherd's heart of John, we just see how much he loved these children, but he loved them. This love was as a result of his abiding in you. So I pray that you would help us to abide in you. By your spirit, we would walk with you each day, that we would enjoy the fellowship that has been provided for us. All this I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Guys, one other thing we can do with what we've uh, heard today is uh, we can stand on it, right? The Lord's hopefully moved in our hearts and revealed truth to each of you uh, according to his will, what he wanted you to get out of the message, right? And so take that truth, and, and this song is one we've done a hundred times. It's, it's the stand. So let's, let's all stand as we worship the Lord together and close our service. Thank you.
stood before creation eternity in your hand you spoke the earth into motion so loud you stand stood
God said what? Amen. Guys, I enjoyed being with you today. I hope you enjoyed being here today in the fellowship and um, worshiping the Lord. Uh, Tonight, again, we're going to have a movie at 6 o'clock. I encourage you to come. We're going to put the comfortable seats in the the fellowship hall, and um, we will have (laughs) Coca-Cola, not the other. I won't even say the name, all right? Great seeing you. Make sure you speak to someone today uh, as you leave. And if you're visiting with us today, thrilled you're able to be a part of our service. Love to speak with you if you'd like. So y'all have a great day. See you soon.